All right, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. And while you're turning there, I'd like to share with you the key truth for this sermon. The key truth for Micah 7 this morning is that God's judgment summons us to wait upon him alone for salvation because he delights in forgiveness, steadfast love, and faithfulness. Let me read that again. God's judgment summons us to wait upon him alone for salvation because he delights in forgiveness, steadfast love, and faithfulness. Let's see that now in the word. This is Micah chapter seven. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your, staff, your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into Micah 7 this morning, remember that we are, are coming on the heels of what has been the, the vast chunk of Micah, which has been this courtroom scene. 
As Micah has been God's prophet and he has called God's people to repent in the presence of the Lord and the Lord has been presenting his case against the people of Judah. And Micah 7 begins in the midst of the third cycle of judgment and salvation in the book of Micah. And when we left off last week, we heard God's voice pronounce judgment upon Judah's materialism. He said, look, I have told you what you are to do, but they were not living as people who did justice, who loved kindness, or who walked humbly before their God. Instead, the Lord called them out in judgment because they were living as a people who did injustice, who loved having it their own way, whatever the cost, and who walked arrogantly before God and neighbor. And so now our chapter this morning begins with Micah on the heels of this courtroom scene, lamenting the state of Judah. He will lament because he sees that God's people are still even having hearing from God himself. They're not repenting. They're not turning back yet. And yet Micah is going to chart out the way for how to live in a circumstance where it seems like things are going to chaos and judgment is falling and people are not repenting, Micah will tell us the way we live then is by waiting upon the Lord. And as we hear this word from Micah, it's essential that we remember theology is meant to be lived. This message should shape our hearts and our lives. And so a great way to tune into this text is by considering this question. How have your hopes been dashed this past year? How have your hopes been dashed this past year? And what did you look to when things did not turn out the way you had hoped? Now, the point of this question is to examine those very hard parts of our lives because it's often in those moments that we can see our hearts most clearly if we'll look back with reflection. We'll see, where do I run when things don't turn out the way I want? Where do I go when I'm anxious, when I'm angry, when I'm afraid? And that will reveal often the idols of our hearts. And this question is important to think about because think back to Cameron's sermon on Micah chapter one. He challenged us to think about how we've been responding to everything related to to the pandemic, everything that's gone down since 2020 and on. So much in our lives, personally and nationally, has not turned out the way we've hoped the past two years. And so what have we been looking to? Are we looking to the God whose judgment clears the way for the salvation of his people? Or have we been looking to things of the earth, things that we can make by our own hands or that we can call for with our own voices online or in person? As Micah's gonna help us see, what we need is to turn to the Lord. We don't need to say, if I could just get to this point, if we can just get through 2020 and into 2021, or if we can just get through 2021 and get into 2022, Micah's gonna say, no, in Christ, you have access to the Lord your God. You can enter the heavenly throne room through Christ now. And so wait upon him. And so let's look at that in this text this morning. As we turn to these, these first seven verses here, we see Micah's lament as he's looking out on Judah and seeing the way their sin is ravaging their society. And you have to think about for Micah, this is a hard point in his ministry. Micah 6, 8 is a very famous verse that we heard last week. You know, people put it on magnets, they'll quote it all over the place, whether they're Christian or not. And yet in Micah's day, it bore very little fruit in his ministry. You know, he says, yes, you know, God has told you what you are to do, to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. And yet as he looks around, that's not what he sees. And so he laments. And he uses this vivid imagery of, of, uh, of agriculture. He says, look, it's like the harvest has already happened. And I'm the last guy to show up to the field and there is nothing left. There are no grapes. There are no figs. It is a barren wasteland. And he makes it clear that he's not talking about fruit because he says in verse 2 that the godly has perished from the earth. And that word godly is the same word used for love and kindness in Micah 6, 8. 
What he's saying is no one is embodying the word of the Lord. No one is hearing God. No one is obeying him. No one is repenting. And he's looking out. He feels alone. And again, it's important to recognize how this grieves Micah. He doesn't turn to Judah with sarcasm and wit and write a bunch of witty things to put them down and shame them. But he grieves the fact that they're missing God's call to repentance. And so he laments and he calls out to the Lord in in this mournful prayer. And he continues on then to describe how society has been destroying each other through their sin. And the result, we could say, is sort of like a society-wide hunger games. You have people hunting each other down, he says, with, with nets and traps. They're pursuing each other. Everyone is in on this game. People don't care what it takes. They're gonna get what they want, and they will push you aside and bulldoze you if you're in their way. And so he, as he looks at this, he, he looks out and he says, look, they're even doing this skillfully. He says, not, not only are people you know, doing what is wrong, but they're getting good at it. They're, they're refining their craft at hurting each other, at sinning. And he says it starts at the top. The prince and the judge, they ask for a bribe. So the whole systems of power and government are broken. And the great man, he says in verse three, utters the evil desire of his soul. And the point of him saying that is usually, you know, if you're a person of influence, you're gonna at least pretend to be decent. You're not gonna hide the fact that you, know, you have these wicked desires and that you're really selfish. You're gonna at least look like you care. But Mike is saying things have gotten so bad, the masks are off. Everybody's in on this game. Everybody is sinning against one another. The entire system is broken. And so at the end of verse four, Micah says that the day of judgment has come. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, the day he as God's prophet had been warning them about is coming. And he says the result will be confusion for the society. And so in verses five and six, he explains how this Hunger Games society is destroying and breaking down every relationship people could have had. It's disrupting friendship and, and neighborliness. It's disrupting family, you know, relationships between parents and children, even between spouses. He's saying everything is being turned upside down and broken. The generations are at war. Households are at war. People cannot trust each other. And so in God's judgment, what he's doing, he's saying, look, if in your sin you want to build a society where you each live like you're God of your own universe, then I will let you see what that looks like. And it looks like this. It looks like this place where gone is relationship, gone is justice, and all that remains now is a bunch of radical individuals who are hunting and being hunted, pursuing their own fleshly desires. Now, in the midst of this bleak picture of Judah, you might have noticed that verse six sounds familiar, where he talks about the son treating the father with contempt and the daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And that is actually because Jesus alludes to this verse. He basically quotes it several times in the Gospels. In Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39, he quotes Micah 7, 6, and he says there that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And if we're honest, that's one of those sayings of Jesus that we're always like, what does he mean? Like, why is Jesus saying he came to bring a sword and not peace? Like, I thought Christmas was all about peace and goodwill to men. Like, why is he saying that? Well, we have to remember where he's drawing from the Old Testament. He's drawing from here in Micah 7. And the reason Jesus said he came to bring peace and not a sword, or came to bring a sword, not peace, and that, and that he came to turn son against father and mother against daughter, the way Micah describes, is because he came to upend the broken systems of the world. He came to break up sin's stranglehold on all aspects of creation. Remember, you know, God does this regularly in redemptive history. Think of the Tower of Babel, when all of mankind is united as one kingdom and they're reaching for the heavens, they're saying, we'll relate to God on our terms. 
We will build a society as we want. We'll dehumanize whoever we want. We'll commodify whomever we want. We will break whatever commandment we want. Everything's going on our terms and in our way, and we'll slap God's name on it with this tower. And God comes down and he breaks it up and he scatters them and he confuses them. Jesus said he came to do something similar. He came not so that he could fix up our systems so that we can have safety and security on our terms. He came to disrupt our systems, to pull us out of our false hopes and to bring us into his kingdom so that we can have safety and security in him alone. And so that's why he draws from Micah 7, 6 in the gospels. He's saying he came to do this and to fulfill it that the kingdom of God would come. And he told us too, that this is a hard way of life as his disciples. It is hard to be in but not of the world. Because as we see, as Micah talks about and as Jesus quotes him, there's conflict that comes from that. There's tension, there's suffering, and it's not always fun. And so the question is, how do we live like this? How do we live in a world where God's judgment you know, is calling people to repent and people are kicking against the goads and they don't want that and they turn against us because we bear God's name? Well, Micah tells us in verse seven, he says, the way we live in but not of the world is by waiting upon the Lord. He says, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so Micah is telling us that when everything in the world looks bleak and grim, when you feel like you're the only one who sees the problems, the first thing we ought to do is not look around and try to diagnose it or complain and grumble about things. The first thing we ought to do is to turn to the Lord and wait upon him and trust that even if no one else is listening to us, our God hears us. And so we wait upon him. And this is very important for us to see because as we think back to that opening question, how have our hopes been dashed and what do we look to then? So often we look to the things of the earth. And if you think about 2020 and 2021 and stuff coming in 2022 and beyond, so often we, we, we define that politically and culturally. And most of us will look to the left or to the right or to some third way that tries to you know, pull parts from both. And it's interesting that as Micah is, is describing Judah's society, he describes the problems that both the left and the right tend to put on blast. You know, the left, we tend to emphasize problems with the system and society. We want a more just system. We want more fairness and equality for all. And on the right, we tend to uh, emphasize brokenness in relationships. We want to have strong families, strong individual responsibility and freedom. And Micah talked about both. He said the whole system's broken from the top down and families are broken. We need more responsibility. So he's saying the whole thing is broken down, and yet notice he looks neither to the left nor to the right, but he looks heavenward to the Lord his God because he knows that there is nothing from either his left hand or his right hand that he can fashion to keep this ship from sinking. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is working out his plans in Judah, and so he knows that before he can ever figure out what he needs to do in his society, he needs to wait upon the Lord and trust in him. And then he might know, well, what does it look like for me to live on the day by day in such a world as this? And so that's important for us to follow his example because as we look around in this world and we see problems on the left and on the right, we can be tempted to say, well, God's over here more, more on this side or maybe he's more on that side when the, that's the wrong question because God's not on the left, he's not on the right, he's not in the middle, God's on his own side. And the real question is, are we on his side? Are we waiting upon the Lord and are we on his side? If we don't ever be still before him, how can we be sure that the things we say are truly said in a way that honors his name? So we need to follow Micah's example. And that phrase, waiting upon the Lord, 
And especially as Americans, you know, we like action. We like to do things. And if you're type A, like I am, you know, the idea of waiting, you're like, come on, man. That sounds like DMV stuff. Like, I don't want to sit around and be still. That's the worst. So we need to remember that when the Bible talks about waiting upon the Lord, it's not talking about something passive where you just sit there and you're kind of mindless and you're passing time, scrolling on your phone, just waiting for something else to happen. Now, waiting upon the Lord is a very active thing. It's a very active way of life as the people of God. And in the, the, chunk, the middle chunk of this passage, Micah gives us several, um, really three points about waiting upon the Lord. And he begins this hymn of salvation. The first three stanzas are, are all about God's salvation of his remnant and then the judgment of the nations. And the last one will be about God himself. But these first three stanzas in the middle of Micah 7 they help us understand what does Micah mean by wait upon the Lord? How do we do that? And the first aspect we see is in verses eight through 10. And here we see that waiting upon the Lord begins with repenting of our sins. It begins with repenting of our sins. And the person talking in these verses as this hymn begins, honoring God as he saves his people is Lady Zion. She is personified again. She's appeared uh, frequently in Micah's book to, to represent the remnant of God's people. And here she sings, and it sounds at first very triumphant. She says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And when we hear that, that sounds really exciting. You know, it sounds like Captain America being like, you know, I could do this all day. You know, this is daunting courage, and I'm gonna be strong, and, you know, you can't take me down. But that's not what actually Lady Zion's singing about. Notice, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. So Lady Zion is not singing about her own strength, spiritual or otherwise. She is singing about the God who is righteous and just, the God against whom she had sinned. And so what we recognize here, remember, this is the remnant singing with Micah. And they, of all people in Judah, could have been like, look, you know, we, we, yes, you know, no one's perfect, but we're not like everybody else who hasn't repented. You know, come on, Lord, like, why do we have to go into exile? But they say with everybody else, they repent. They recognize they live in Judah. They are part of this problem of rebellion against the Lord, their God. And so they will bear his indignation under his sovereign hand. They will trust that his judgment will lead them to their redemption eventually. They will go into exile, into that darkness, and they will look to the Lord to be their light. And that's important for us to learn from because they place their hope in God's word of vindication over them. They're not bent on de defending themselves and, and you know, responding to every bit of mockery or criticism that will either be hurled at them by the unrepentant members of Judah or by Babylon who will carry them into exile. And Babylon will mock them. That's what you did when you took people into exile. You made fun of them because they and their God were supposedly smaller than you and your God and you won. So you go nana nana boo boo and you put them down. And yet, notice that they trust the Lord. And this is important because so often, so often the reason that you and I are lame and hesitant and even bitter in our repentance is because we are afraid that if I repent of what I've got going on, then those people over there who have something going on that I don't like, then they get away with it. And so why should I repent if they're not going to? That's not fair. You know, what I've got going on, yeah, it's sin, I'm not perfect, but that's a big problem. They need to deal with what they got going on. I'm gonna talk about that. But that's not repentance. 
That's not for us to control. I can't force you to repent of something you've got going on. I could call you to it in the name of the Lord just like you could do for me. But at the end of the day, we are to repent of our own sin, whether it's individual or collectively as a church or as a society, but it's on us to deal with our own hearts. I can't control yours and you can't control mine. And so we need to learn from Judah's example here that waiting upon the Lord means we take very seriously God's call to repent of our sins because we know there is a day coming. There is a day coming when those who do not repent will be put to shame. They will bear the cost of their sin, as verse 10 says. And then we will see them, and we ought not see them and gloat, but really to mourn that they did not listen to the Lord. They did not escape his righteous judgment. Now, the second aspect of waiting upon the Lord is participating in his mission. And we see this in verses 11 through 13. So we start by waiting upon the Lord and repenting of our sin, and then we get to participate in his mission. And verse 11 talks about a day for the building of your walls, and it uses that phrase, in that day. And that phrase is a clue. It points forward to the day when God would move and bring in his kingdom, which he's already started with Jesus coming for the first time, and which he will complete when Jesus comes for the second time. That's the already, but not yet. The kingdom has already started to come in. That day has started to arrive. And so this, uh, these verses are not just about the return from exile that Judah would get to experience in 537 BC. After they go into exile in Babylon in 537, they would come back, they would get to rebuild, and yet it wouldn't be the same. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you see that it's not this grand and glorious restoration that the people had hoped for. You know, they, they're brought back, but things are not the same. And so these verses ultimately point forward to what Jesus is doing through his church to advance his kingdom, which he's been doing for 2,000 years now. And so as Micah talks about building up the walls, it's important to recognize that in the Bible, there are actually different words in Hebrew for wall because there are different kinds of walls. They're big fortress walls that keep the bad guys out. And then there are little smaller walls that hedge out your farm and your vineyards. And the word here is for those farm walls. So what Micah's talking about is not, let's build up the walls, let's keep out the sinners. He's saying, no, we're brought back to the land and it's put back right. It's put back into order so that it can be fruitful again, so that life can be sustained here again. He's talking ultimately using imagery to point to discipleship to the kingdom and the family of God getting bigger as more and more people come to know the Lord. And we see that in an exciting way in verse 12 because it says, in that day, they will come to you. And who's they? It's Assyria. It's Egypt. It's the very agents of oppression and tyranny against God's people now coming and being redeemed as sons and daughters of God and therefore as brothers and sisters of the people whose ancestors they had oppressed. This is a beautiful picture of harmony and reconciliation in the kingdom of God. And it's happening because the people are participating in the mission. They're building up not the walls of their own interests to keep people away, but they're building up the walls that will make the kingdom of God an orderly and fruitful place for many disciples to bear the name of Jesus. And we know, again, that this mission is not optional for us because verse 13 reminds us that there is a day coming where the earth will be desolate at Christ's return because it's inhabitants and the fruit of their deeds. So this should give us pause. You know, again, as we think about what happens when our hopes are dashed and we get mad and we wanna you know, lash out and diagnose the problem and, and you know, call out and take to task the people that we think are wrong, you know, what is that doing to them? Like what, you know, it makes us feel good. You know, 
It feels good to figure something out, at least when we think we figured it out. But what impact are our words having on other people? You know, is it making them a disciple of anything? Is it pushing them further into sin and rebellion? Is it giving them a bitter taste of the name of Christ? You know, there is coming a day where those who don't know him, you know, they will answer for their deeds. Better for us to spend our time investing in the next generation, cultivating our everyday ordinary relationships and building up disciples because that is the mission that God has entrusted to us. That is what we get to do as we wait upon the Lord. Now, the third aspect of waiting upon the Lord we see in verses 14 through 17. And here we see that as we wait upon the Lord, we get to pray boldly. And we see this because verses uh, 14 through 17 are this prayer between God's people and the Lord. He actually answers them in verse 15. But it starts in verse 14 with Micah and the remnant. And they pick up this shepherd imagery that's been throughout the book of Micah, reminding them that there would be a shepherd who would come from Bethlehem. And that's Jesus, of course. And they pick up that imagery and they pray and they ask God. They say, Lord, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. And they point to these cities, to Bashan and Gilead. These were cities that Israel had when the kingdom was united, which was only for a brief time, but it was under the reign of Saul, but especially David and Solomon. And Bashan and Gilead were places of of great fertile land. It was good for growing crops. It was the best of the best that Israel had. And so when they're asking God to bring them back to that, they're saying, restore us, Lord. Restore us to your favor. Restore us to be a place where life is sustained and we can grow and worship you. And then in verse 15, God answers. And he says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. And so what God is saying, is he's saying that just as he had acted in a mighty way, at the Exodus, to bring Israel out of Egypt's vile clutches. He will act again to restore his people. He will show them marvelous things for their restoration. And we know, of course, that he did that. He does that with the incarnation of his son who came and was born in a manger and who would grow up among us, Emmanuel, God with us, and who ultimately would ascend the cross and rise from the grave. These are marvelous things that our God has done to save us. And the people bolstered with hope because God answers their prayer. They respond in verses 16 through 17. And they look out and they say, you know, these nations that we are scared of, we know that they are small before the Lord. And that when he acts, then they will be ashamed of all their might. We see here this great reversal. The things the nations thought that made them strong, you know, their might, their strongholds, all of these things, those very things will be what puts them to shame. You know, their weapons will look like little plastic or foam swords. They'll look like LARPers before the Lord's might because they will not be able to withstand. And that's important for us to recognize. Again, what have you been worried about politically in this world this past year? Have you taken time to do what God's people do here and put it before the Lord and recognize, yeah, this is a big deal. It's gonna affect my life. It's gonna affect my kids and my grandkids' life but it can't shake this. It can't stop this. The Lord is on his throne and these enemies, all of them, all the nations, anyone who does not turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, they will be put to shame in the very things that they thought made them mighty. And they will turn to the Lord in fear and dread. And so again, better that we join the remnant of God's people in prayer, in prayer for the nations, that they would repent now, that God would grant them a heart of repentance, that they would not turn to him in, in fear and dread, but turn to him in awe and worship today, that the family would get bigger. 
Because our theology, again, is meant to be lived, and one of the best ways we live our theology is by praying it. And we see the remnant do that here as they wait upon the Lord. Now, as we put this together so far, then, we see the first three stanzas of this hymn of salvation. They teach us that waiting upon the Lord involves repenting of our sins, participating in God's mission, and praying boldly. And now we come to the fourth stanza of the hymn. Because it's as if Mike is saying, look, you know, this is what it looks like to live as we wait upon the Lord. But sometimes, again, we may not be convinced that this is worthwhile. Because again, we like action. We want to take things in our own hands. And so Micah closes this hymn and he closes his whole book with this last stanza on the character of the Lord our God. And these are the verses that we've gotten to hear each week as our benediction, this Advent series. These are beautiful verses. They are meant to lead us up to the Lord in worship and praise because they remind us that as the question asked, who is a God like you? The answer is no one. God is utterly and absolutely unique. Micah's own name means who is like Yahweh. His whole name and his whole ministry is pointing to this moment. Now, as we look in verse 18, notice right away that Micah ties God's uniqueness and his character to his forgiving spirit. The fact that he pardons iniquity and he passes over transgression. And these phrases, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, these should be familiar phrases to us here at Christ Community because we regularly remind ourselves of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. These verses are using that language. This is how our God reveals who he is. He is a God who delights in forgiving our sins. And that is a point that we have to grasp because so often we don't think that God delights in forgiveness. We know that we don't always delight in repentance. You know, we, we drag our feet. It takes Judah, you know, decades to get there for some of them. And so we can assume that, you know, maybe God doesn't delight in forgiveness. Maybe God drags his feet. Or maybe he's an angry God. You know, he needed the son to come and twist his arm and say, hey, calm down, you know, forgive us. But no, that is not true. Our God is a loving God. And we must remember that his love is not an exception to his anger, but his anger is an expression of his love. His love is fundamental to who, to who he is. 1 John 4.16 makes this clear. God is love. And so this is why Micah reminds us, God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in forgiveness. He delights in showing us steadfast love. And so although we don't delight in showing steadfast love, God does. And Calvin, in his commentary on Micah, he, he makes the case that knowing the loving character of our God is the most important thing we can do in our lives. He even goes as far to say that we can't truly and sincerely worship God if we are not convinced that he delights in showing us love and mercy. And why would he say that? And you know, that's surprising maybe, because if you think of Calvin and his reputation, you might be like, oh, Calvin would say, if you don't believe in predestination, you can't worship. But that's not what he says. He says, if you aren't convinced that God is a God who delights in steadfast love, you won't be worshiping in, in him in truth and sincerity. Why? Because God is not some impersonal cosmic force. He's not some distant deity. He is a God who defines himself as love, and to know him is a relational thing. How you understand God's character, therefore, matters. If you were to describe me as a guy who's 6'3 and good at basketball to people, folks would be like, you don't know Matt O'Sullivan. That's not that guy. It's a different person. In the same way, if we don't know our God as a God who delights in steadfast love, we do not know him as well as we think we do. We do not, because that's who he is. And yes, we struggle to believe that. And that's a real struggle, and we shouldn't be ashamed of hiding that, because when we stuff it down, it festers, 
and it doesn't get dealt with, we should be honest about the fact that we struggle to believe this, but we need to struggle well and struggle together to believe it because it's true. That was Calvin's point, and he's just pointing back to what Micah already told us. So we wanna know that our God delights in loving us. He delights in it. And because he delights in loving us, verse 19 explains how he treads our iniquities under his feet, and he casts our sins, all of them, into the depths of the seas. And here Micah is echoing the song of Moses from Exodus 15, that great worship song that Moses um, uh, leads Israel in after they're brought out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and they sing and they celebrate the marvelous acts of their God. And so here Micah picks up that imagery and he says, look, just as God used the one who was placed in a basket to escape Pharaoh's judgment on the Nile and he used that man, Moses, to lead Israel out of Egypt, so God would use the one who was born and placed in a manger and actually give him up to judgment to lead us out of the kingdom, not of Pharaoh, not of Egypt, but out of Satan, darkness, sin, and all manner of evil. He's saying that is our God and he deals strongly with our sin. I think that's interesting to notice how, how strongly God deals with our sin because if you go back to verses 16 and 17, remember the nations, they tremble before the Lord. Now their weapons are plastic, their strongholds are sandcastles. And so it's hyping up God's power and notice where Micah goes with it. Not to, yeah, God crushes our enemies, but God crushes our sin. He treads our iniquities under his feet and he casts all of our sins in the depths of the sea and we know how he did it. He did it by casting his own son in the depths of the grave, bearing our sin, being made our sin so that he would take it to the grave and he would rise again with victory and life and peace with God in his hands that he could give it to us by the spirit this day. And so our sins do not stand a chance against the mighty love of our God. We need to believe that. And then lastly, in verse 20, Micah highlights God's faithfulness. He says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And this verse is, is, is a lovely verse and it's picked up actually by Mary in her Magnificat in Luke chapter one. And really in most of the, the, the poems and songs in Luke one and two, you can hear echoes of these aspects of God's character in all the songs that are sung. This has everything to do with Christmas, with Advent, because God was faithful then. He was fulfilling his promises to the patriarchs and sending Jesus. And he's gonna be faithful again to fulfill his promise that he will come back, that his church will prevail, that the gates of death and hell themselves will not prevail against his church. He will come back and we wait upon him and we trust that he is faithful to us. Ultimately, in that eternal sense and every day, he's faithful to us. He provides what we need. He gives us opportunities to grow, to hear from his word. He gives us each other to love and support one another in hard times. Our God is faithful. And when you think about how much has been changed since COVID-19 struck, with all the things going on in our own culture, we need to remember that God is faithful and true. And remember it not in abstract, but remember it in concrete, everyday little details, because evidence is there. And it should lead us to gratitude, and gratitude should lead us to worship. As we think about that, listen to how Dale Ralph Davis, a great commentator on this book of Micah, sums up these verses for us. He says, as Micah began his prophecy with the fury of God's wrath in verses, uh, chapter one, verses two through nine, so now he closes it with the fountain of God's mercy and he can scarcely contain himself. He is part of a Babylon bound people who will endure Yahweh's judgment and yet 
This believing remnant waits for Yahweh and knows that God will in grace bring about restoration. And Micah is simply overcome. So here, it is as though Micah is saying to us, join me in being thrilled over the God of all grace and then come, let us adore him. So may we come and adore him this morning. And as we wrap up this sermon and as we look to the new year ahead, I've got some questions here for us to help us come and adore the Lord our God. And these questions are designed um, to take time for reflection, either as an individual, a small group, as your family. But I encourage you this next week, as you maybe have some more time off for the holidays and you're looking to the new year, use these questions to reflect upon the Lord. And the questions are, how have you experienced God's compassionate forgiveness this past year? You know, be specific. Where have you messed up and sinned big time and how has the Lord forgiven you there? How have you tasted and seen his steadfast love and faithfulness? Again, what, what are those moments where God is reminding you he loves you, he is faithful, he is with you, he, is, he loves us, he is with our church? And then finally, how can you continue to wait upon his forgiveness, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness this upcoming year? You know, imagine what it would look like for 2022 to be a year that regardless of the ways our earthly hopes are dashed, and they will be dashed as they are every year, by COVID or elections or culture or work or family and everything else that goes on in life under the sun, things are not gonna go the way we want. And rather than, you know, hitting like week two of January and being like, well, there's always 2023, you know, what would it be like, what would it be like if we said, you know what, no, this year we're gonna work together as a church and we're gonna anchor our hope and we're gonna challenge each other to anchor our hope on this God, our God, who delights in forgiving our sins, who delights in showing us steadfast love, who delights in being faithful to us, that will change us as a people. That will change us as a church. That will change the generations. So that is what we ought long for because that is what our God gives us and that is what we can offer to this world as it groans in darkness. Amen? Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, that you are who you are. Lord, you are a God who delights in showing us forgiveness. Lord, and so often we don't delight in repentance and it's probably, Lord, because we don't believe that you delight in loving us. Because if we, if we understood that, Lord, we'd be very quick to run to your throne. And so, Lord, would you humble us? Help us not to feel bad about the fact that we don't understand you as well as we often think we do. Lord, forgive us for sometimes acting like your love is just the basics and we've got that and we need to get on to deeper things. Lord, that's not true either. There is nothing deeper than your love for us in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. So help us to come, to behold, to adore we thank you that you are faithful and that you provide even this table that we will get to come to now. Lord, that you have given your own son, body and blood, to forgive us, to love us, to be faithful to us. May we taste and see of your grace today. And would you guide us as individuals, as families, as a church family this next year. Use us, Lord, not to make a bunch of noise about our hopes being dashed, but instead to anchor our hope on you, that we would be used for you to grow your kingdom that even just a couple more folks would be members of our church next year who did not yet know you. But what a thing that would be for them to know the God who delights in love. We pray this in your name, amen.